we're just thrust into the world with no guidance or anything. And it is totally up to us, according to the existentialist, to figure out what that meaning is. Thanks so much for joining us here in the Caves of Altamira for episode six. And today we have a fascinating and interesting topic to dig into. For those who have been keeping up with the shows as they come out, we're going to be taking a bit of a turn in topic. The last few episodes kind of dealt with issues centered on Korea and East Asian more broadly, looking at some politics and also issues with migration. And today we're going to be Circling back to perhaps some of the topics broached in episode one or two with our guests, George Corey and Jim Bacho, and it's going to be centered around kind of bigger picture philosophical questions, but in some ways, even digging in a little bit deeper and going even beyond philosophy as it relates to politics or society and so forth, but really digging into philosophy as it deals with how we act, how we live, what is the meaning and purpose of our lives, which perhaps is a foundational question that, given the kind of tumult and upheaval and constant flow of information and images and what have you that kind of populate many of our lives, um, might, you know, it's a question that's always lingering there, but often might be kind of buried or, or put to the side or kind of, we don't have time to really think about what our purpose is, which might even sound a bit backwards, right? Um, but nonetheless, I think many of us would recognize such a state of affairs, myself included, for sure. And so I wanted to really take an opportunity to dig into this and, and through the lens of an area of philosophy and thought that it's one of those things that I think often, um, I describe it in the episode as like the book that no one's read, but everyone has really firm opinions on. And, um, and I don't know, maybe people really don't have that many firm opinions on it, but that would be existentialism, right? And I think there's a lot there and a lot to be explored and, and a lot of very practical and, and useful approaches to understanding our lives, understanding society, understanding how we live and function and attempt to thrive within society that are often glossed over or flippantly dismissed as pie in the sky or this you know, overly intellectualized stuff. And sure, some of existentialism may fit into that category. And so today we're not going to be covering existentialism as this massive field of philosophy and, and study of, of human life and human experience. Um, we're going to be looking at existentialism through the window of our guest and some of the areas that she focuses on that are tied to not only her own life experiences, but things she works in and, and matters pertaining to psychology. And, and that guest is none other than the fantastic Simone Lee, um, who I'm just so happy to have on here. Um, I've had many conversations with Simone on these kinds of topics and uh, when I was thinking about putting the show together, her name was one of the ones that came right to the forefront, and thankfully I was able to track her down and get her uh, to agree to come on here and talk about existentialism and authenticity and how to live an authentic life. And I think Simone just has a really excellent way of not only bringing some of the kind of key insights of existentialism to the forefront, but also putting them in a way that 
is very applicable to how we live and, and immediately applicable, right? That it doesn't require some deep philosophical journey or investigation. Um, these things are quite graspable and, and can provide some interesting frameworks and ideas for how to think about our life and our experiences. So I'd like to tell you just a little bit more about Simone before we get into the conversation. Simone Lee originally hails from Johannesburg, South Africa. She did her undergraduate work in psychology at the University of Witwatersrand. I hope I'm saying that right. She spent about three years in Korea and, as she puts it, had an existential crisis, so um, packed into uh, the theme here. And she headed back to South Africa to do a master's in philosophy um, with a focus on personal autonomy, mental illness, and bioethics. And that was also at the University of Witwatersrand. She is currently a research coordinator for the University of Texas in a program providing recovery services for people suffering from opioid abuse and other substance use disorders. She has also recently been admitted to the PhD program in psychology at Texas Women's University. So congratulations to Simone for that. Um, and she's just an authority um, on these topics and again, someone who I think really has a unique ability to bring these issues to life and break them down in a way that wipes away a lot of the jargon and misconceptions about what existentialism is or potentially can be depending on how you look at it. So without further ado, let's get to the conversation. Okay, Simone Lee, welcome to the Caves of Altamira. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here. Well, I'm quite excited to have you on to dig into these ideas of existentialism and more specifically authenticity and how they overlap with our experience in life in the modern age um, and how we kind of navigate that and the different pressures and forces that press upon us and, and how we try to etch out some sort of notion of existence and authentic identity um, amidst uh, the kind of constant information stream and flow that has become the reality for many of our lives. So one of the big things I want to try to accomplish here is to get a square idea of what we mean by existentialism. It's kind of like that book that everyone has an opinion about, but no one's read. Um, I, that's my thinking mm -hmm. of existentialism, <laughs> right? Uh, that it, it, everyone has some sort of feeling about it or thought about it, often generally negative uh, these days, it seems like very often. So let's just start with the big question. What is existentialism? Sure, right. Yeah, and you're totally right because everyone knows the, the phrase existential crisis or dread or angst or something like that. And very rarely do they tie back to the origins of the philosophical ideas. But it is important that it is a worldly philosophy. It's not really something that's uh, reserved for armchair philosophers and people in the ivory tower, which is kind of an important thing as well. But essentially, existentialism is a response to the idea that we are all imbued with and life is imbued with some inherent meaning and essence. So it was a re response to the like Platonic and Aristotelian ideas of essentialism, which claimed that we all served some kind of purpose and there was a trajectory or a purpose to our lives. So this went on for like thousands of years and, and really 
as you've spoken in a few episodes about kind of Nietzsche, really it was World War II that kind of brought existentialism to the forefront. And the main claim of existentialism is that there is no essence inherent to anything. So when, when Nietzsche turns around and says God is dead, it's basically saying, actually, you know, nothing is inherently meaningful. How can we have experienced all of this horror and atrocity in the world and, and think that there is some like true inherent meaning or essence to, to life? Actually, the truth is that existence comes first. So Sartre later on, after Nietzsche, will come to define existentialism as saying existence precedes essence. And that means really that we don't have this inherent essence and purpose in life. Actually, we have, we exist and we're thrown into the world and, and it's our job really to figure out what our essence is or will become. Just to interrupt here, when you're hearing you say that, um, it, it makes me think of the door song, Riders on the Storm, which maybe now uh, I never really thought about it in an existential way, but the um, one of the lyrics in that is, into this world we're thrown. And so when you say existence precedes essence, you're saying that we kind of get thrown into this world and then it's really up to us to figure out meaning? Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. And that's why I say it's important for us to think that think about the fact that everyone kind of goes through these moments of, you know, I didn't ask to be born. That's an existential moment. So the lyrics that you're talking about, totally existential in nature because we are, we're just thrust into the world with no guidance or anything. And it is totally up to us, according to the existentialist, to figure out what that meaning is. Right on. And now in this context, and this is something um, in the past we've discussed, and I, I was always really interested in your ideas about this, there's a certain connected notion of this idea of authenticity. So, you know, in the existential model, for lack of a better term, or understanding of the world, we come into the world without a purpose or meaning. And actually, the project of our life, maybe we could say, is to identify or construct our own purpose and meaning from basically, as you're referring to, nothing. It's an empty slate uh, in terms of what our purpose or meaning is. And a kind of common thread that runs through this line of thinking is this notion of authenticity. And I was wondering if you could uh, speak a little bit more about that. Sure, yeah. So, what happens once existentialism is defined, we, we try and figure out an ethic, right? How do we live? What do we do now that we've realized that existence precedes essence? And so the existentialists try and figure out some kind of ethic. And the best way that I've ever been able to articulate this is through Sartrean language. Okay, so just jump in, that would be Jean-Paul Sartre. Yes. Right, the French philosopher, who is one of the most famous existential thinkers and writers, certainly, right, you would say? Absolutely. So he he was writing just after the Second World War and was a very famous political figure as well at some point and wrote a lot of philosophy, mainly ontology. His, his work, Being in Nothingness, was an ontological work that is central to the whole school of existential thought. Right, with ontology, which uh, for those who are dedicated listeners know we got into with Jim Baccio in the past, but just as a, as a reminder, um, is the study or exploration of what is the nature of reality, like ultimate reality, what constitutes the world we live in and experience. Is that roughly yeah. um, what? The, all right, great. So he, he's into ontology. And so what does Sartre bring to the table then? So what he says in Being in Nothingness is the main tenet of existential philosophy, which is that nothing has any meaning whatsoever. 
And the, the big problem with this, of course, is if nothing has meaning, then what are we supposed to do? What are, what are the ethics involved in all of this? And while he never really pulls apart like a clear theory of ethics, we can kind of determine from his theory of ontology the way that he sees existence. And so what he does is he kind of separates our experience as human beings or, or our circumstances into these two categories that he names transcendence and facticity, which are just two really stupid names for um, like... <laughs> basically the things that we cannot change and the things that we can. So an example of our facticity is, you know, the day that we were born, uh, the, the place we were born or the country that we were born in, as opposed to right now, I can choose whether or not to leave this country. That's my transcendence. So, so there are these elements of our lives that we can control and then some elements that we cannot control. So these are things that ca absolutely cannot be changed. Um, and so these basic realities that have some bearing on who we are and the decisions that we make. Of course, uh, saying that existence precedes essence and that we need to define our own meaning in life also means that we've got a lot of freedom to define who we are and that brings a lot of responsibility. So what ends up happening, for Sartre at least, is we make our decisions based on the circumstances we're in. So we justify those decisions based on what is possible and what's impossible and what we're free to do or what we're not free to do. And we have to take responsibility for those decisions. So if we make a decision that is justified in most part by our facticity, or if we identify as too closely with our transcendence, we're living in bad faith, which Basically, he's saying, if we blame our circumstances and decisions too much on the things we can't control, without taking into account the things we can't control, we're living in bad faith. So, uh, let me think of a good example. To say that I really want to be able to run 20 miles tomorrow is, unfortunately, <laughs> it's... Um, I'd be living in bad faith if, it's, if I thought there were a possibility because it, it just so happens that even though that potential exists, that transcendence exists, the, the reality is my facticity is I'm just not fit enough. I would need to do a bunch of training. My body's not used to that much activity and that kind of thing. In, in all of our decision making, we have to take into account the realities of things and the potential of things. So basically, if we are ever lying to ourselves about what's possible or not possible, we are in bad faith. And bad faith is the opposite of authenticity. That was a really backward way of answering what is authenticity. Well, that's a great way often to define things is by etching out what it's not. And so just to back up to see if I, I'm understanding this uh, correctly, what it seems to be you're outlining kind of a view of the world where we have certain kind of limitations to what we can do, and we have certain ability to imagine possible things we can do, and that if we exist too much in either world, it's going to cause us to live in, in you know, what you call bad faith um, and to live outside of the realm of what you're, you know, kind of getting at towards the end, auth authenticity. Is, is that roughly it? Yeah. It, yeah, that's exactly it. That, you know, in some ways, and, and this is where I'm going to play um, amateur phil philosopher, philosophical sleuth here. Um, this is I'm getting into dangerous territory. But I mean, in some ways, 
it, this conjures in my mind Hegel's kind of dialectic, right? Like we have these two opposing forces and the authentic life is finding some quote-unquote synthesis between them, like an, an intermixing of our real limitations with our ability to imagine possibilities and to kind of actualize them. Is, am, I, am I off base here? No, I don't no, know. No, I'm, I'm not a philosopher. <laughs> yeah, well, yes, you are, actually. I have never read Hegel, so you're kicking my butt in this topic already. No, no. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I, I've read Hegel by like third party. You know, I've read people who write about Hegel. I, I have never deigned to um, tackle that in the original. So I've, I've listened to some podcasts about Hegel. So that's my... That, that's, yeah, still, that's still more than I've done. Well, no, right. but, but this is um, an interesting thing. There are so many philosophers um, that kind of come back to this. And it, it's so funny you had mentioned in one of the previous episodes, uh, three questions and back to Plato. Everything, right. everything comes back to th this duality of reality and appearance. And so for Sartre, it's transcendence and facticity, being a nothingness. And for Kierkegaard, he's talking about either or. And there's all of these existentialists are making this point that there are two ways that we can be living. And there are things we can control and there are things we can't control. And there's always these categories. And the idea is, among most of these philosophers, is that when we find the reality, so not necessarily a balance, because that would suggest that things are equal and that's not always the case. But when we admit that what we're doing is out of the realistic measure of what we can control and what we can't control, like once we've become completely honest with ourselves and transparent with ourselves about what we're doing and what we have done and, and, and that kind of thing. I don't know if this is making any sense, but <laughs> no, it's making a lot of sense. So let's circling back to Sartre and, you know, my limited uh, understanding of him. And I think you indicated this earlier. One of his big ideas seems to be that the realm of what we control is often much bigger than we realize. Is that, is that right? Um, I suppose, yeah, I suppose. I, I actually don't know how to answer that question. Um, mm. Or maybe better said, like, because you, you mentioned the term kind of responsibility, mm -hmm. right? That the existential perspective on the world endows us with freedom, but in a kind of cliched way, that freedom comes with responsibility. And so for Sartre, is it, I have, you know, vague ideas about that he emphasized this responsibility, right? That, that we have a lot of responsibility that grows out of our existential condition, that we have abilities to act and, and shape and create our world very often in a way that is beyond the, the extent to which many people would realize or acknowledge. Is that, yeah, is that in the in right way or, 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 or not? What, what do you think? Yeah, no, that's, that's totally right. I mean, the yeah, forget what Sartre thinks. What do you think? <laughs> Who cares? Who cares about Sartre? I'm enough of him. Well, no, I mean, what, so what he thinks is somewhat important in comparison to what sure, I think. Sure, okay. Well, but yeah, so, so what he's saying is we have to create this existence for ourselves and with that, it means that we have all this freedom and so he, so he uses this example about one of his students who he's in a bit of a quandary. His student has been enlisted in the, in the army to go and fight in the war. Um, but at the same time, his mother 
is, is extremely ill and he is the only person that can look after his mother. So he's got a choice to make. He, he can go to the war and, and help fight some war that he may or may not have any interest in, but he's, he's doing his civic duty. Or he can stay home and help his mother. But either way, he's got, he's got to make a decision. And Sartre says, well, nobody else can give you that answer. Only you can decide. And whatever you do decide, you have to take complete responsibility for. Yes. Responsibility. That's the kind of interesting term. Right. So there's no, there's no guidelines at all. There's no, the only way that you can be making an authentic decision here is by doing whatever most closely aligns with your own personal values. And once you've made that decision, you own that decision. You cannot, in good faith, in authenticity, turn around and say, well, I had to make this decision because this circumstance made me. No, you have to take complete responsibility for the decisions that you do end up making. And and so any kind of shirking responsibility, any excuses that anybody make is typically a, a bad faith response. So, so anytime anyone turns around and says, well, I couldn't do X, Y, or Z because of this and this thing. Well, to Sartre, you would be either over-identifying with the circumstances you can't control or over-identifying with the things you can't control. Either way, you're not being realistic about where, where you're at and why you made the decisions you did. Interesting. And I, and I think this is an excellent point to segue to what I really wanted to dig into. So I think we laid out some of the really core ideas. And, and in some ways, I'm, I'm, even if people are listening to this aren't well-versed or have a kind of vague or perhaps even negative view of existentialism, I think what's coming to light here is something that's quite recognizable to our lives. Like we encounter circumstances. Um, none of us have chose to be born and we encounter a world where we have limitations, but we also have aspirations or, or are confronted with choices. You, you mentioned Kierkegaard, like either or, do this or that. And we find ourselves faced with another choice as to the extent to which we feel responsible for the choices we've made, right? And, and how, where we end up. To me, that appeal is, is, is its universality that it can transcend a lot of different social and cultural contexts, right? Because certainly those can provide different kinds of sets of circumstances that we encounter. But whether one is living in Iran or Brazil or Poland, or you know, I'm just listing countries, um, Canada, certainly perhaps people are going to encounter different realities. And we can, we can maybe dig into this a little bit later in terms of how they understand possibilities. But Nonetheless, in all of those contexts, they're going to still be confronted with these choices and then confronted with the kind of secondary issue of their responsibility for those choices. So I, I think that's a very universal and that is something that is very close to actual human experience, right? Mm -hmm. and so I, I hopefully that's one thing that's come out of your very excellent description of this is how, quote unquote, relevant this is to everyone's lives. That, that, that it is kind of an essential feature of it's the, human existence. The human condition, yeah. And that's often how I think of existentialism is, is a model for understanding. You know, there are social theories and social philosophies and, and so forth that posit a way things are or causal connections and, and X's exist, so therefore we need to do Y, which should lead to Z. And, and I think of ex existentialism often as an approach to understanding the parameters 
within which we live, mm-hmm. right? Which so all is a way to say that I think this translate transitions very nicely into what I'm really interested to talk with you about is how these ideas help us understand reality in the present age, where increasingly so much of our life is being mediated through internet technology or or software or programs, be it Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, instant messaging, I don't know. I mean, you know, WhatsApp. I, I, I've kind of really, I'm, I'm a bit old, so I'm kind of pared down like the things I use. But I mean, it seems like there's a huge amount of ways that we now, again, mediate our, our communications, mediate how we organize ourselves, mediate how we express ourselves. And so, how can these ideas of uh, particularly like authenticity help us try to understand our place or our interaction with these sorts of technology? Yeah, it's a it's a really interesting question. And, you know, I think to answer it, I, I kind of have to just consider all of those things just weird mutations of just general human communication. And so I'd have to think about what you know, what would the existentialist say in terms of how we do interact with other people? For instance, Sartre claims that we can never really have a, a, a truly authentic relationship with another person because we can't know them entirely subjectively. Uh, so we will, w- without the ability to know somebody entirely subjectively, we are essentially treating them as an object. And that, that is in itself, bad faith. And a lot of times when we treat ourselves in any way that is more like an object, then we are not being authentic with ourselves. So what, what, this, what that really means is any time that you look at one angle of something, one snippet of something in time, any kind of like surface angle of something and assume that that thing represents the whole thing, then you're treating that thing as an, as an object. You're not taking into account all of the millions of other like constantly evolving things that are going on behind the scenes. So I, I think in terms of like face-to-face communication, you, you know, if I'm having a conversation with you and looking at you, um, I can't really assume that what, what you're saying and how you're looking at me is everything. You're not, we're not entirely transparent with one another. I can't know all of the experiences and all of the reasoning that's led you to where you are to speak these sentences to me right here and right now. So there's no way that I can be completely transparent with you and vice versa. And, and likewise, you're, you're curating what you're sharing with me in that moment. And that's, you know, and that's like the ultimate human connection. We can never actually, according to Sartre at least, never actually close that gap because we're just, all we're doing is trying really, really hard to communicate with one another as best as we possibly can, but also have to really realize that we can't close that gap. We can't ever be completely transparent with one another. So with social media, that just becomes so concentrated and so amplified and the amount that we can curate what other people see us as is, it's really, it's just so distilled and, and frightening because even if we did have some inkling that we could know other people, the age of, of, of social media really diminishes that prospect that we could ever really know somebody more than what they're, they're communicating to us. And it, and it essentially is, building this world in which we stop trying to treat other people as subjects 
you know, it's a spectacle. We're, we're viewing, we're window shopping Facebook, right? We're like mm. scrolling through these little like snapshots of people's lives. And in some way, we're just kind of taking for granted that that's who that person is. And, and that is, that's not true, right? We're, we're lying to ourselves if we think that that's true. And that's the easy way out. And that's not being authentic. So us believing that that is truly representative is not authentic. And that person posting, whatever they're posting, in an attempt to convey that as a, an accurate representation, that's also not authentic. Well, the words, uh, you, you mentioned it several times. I really like the idea of curation, mm-hmm. um, that we are in the constant process of not only curating ourselves in terms of how we express ourselves and, and even in face-to-face interactions, we're in a process or, I mean, to really dig into it, I mean, getting dressed in the morning is a, is a process of curation, right? And, and how we want to look to the world. When I heard you talking, I was like, wow. So, you know, 1997, Kevin, um, when he was just having chats like on the college campus was like, you, you know, how different was my comments in a chat different from like a Facebook post. Like if you, if you think about this model of curation, there is a, a, a certain continuity. It is a certain collapsing of a whole host of things into a comment. And, and in some ways, it does share that with the Facebook post, I guess. But you also get at that perhaps like to use Facebook or Twitter or whatever else kind of, you know, just using Facebook as a proxy. I think a lot of younger people do use other. <laughs> I mean, TikTok, I'm still not even sure what TikTok I is. I have no but, idea. You know, no, I, I, well, I genuinely I have like, no idea what TikTok let me, is. Let me have my old man moment here because I'm like, TikTok, like people put videos up. I'm like, so how is that different from YouTube? I don't get it. I'm like, well, is <laughs> you're just putting a video of yourself. I, yeah, I don't get it. I, so yeah, somehow it's, it's, I guess it's different because it, it's something that, you know, uh, the, the younger people that, you know, even in their 20s and 30s are, are way into it. And maybe some older people, I'm sure. But um, I guess it's like, okay, you can make a video of yourself and upload it and then other people can watch it. And I'm like, well, that sounds like YouTube. Um, but but I, I, apparently it's different. And it's like, well, it's got to be shorter. And I'm like, well, couldn't you just put a 20 second video on YouTube? But, yeah. So, so I don't know. I mean, no, no, I, I've obviously lost the plot somewhere here, but that's kind of... It's such a great so. example of, of this existential crisis, really. It's almost as if, okay, we've gone from having face-to-face communications with people. We realize we can't express the entirety of our self to another person, but we can give them a snapshot of who we are in a face-to-face conversation. I'm so glad. I, I'm so glad that's the case for myself. And you know, right. that, I think that's one of the great... We don't, yeah. We don't, <laughs> I, I was... I was <laughs> Kevin, when, I when we that. knew each other, I was under the terribly naive impression that the only way to live right would be to be completely transparent with everyone in every way. And it oh just, dear God. Yeah, it totally blew up in my face. It was a terrible way, <laughs> terrible way to live life. <laughs> I realize this no, now. No. No. <laughs> yeah, it's like uh, you want to you want a constrained authenticity, maybe. Yeah, no, totally constrained, <laughs> a, a, a but again, contained, a, a curated authenticity. A cur- a cur- <laughs> <laughs> I like where that's going. Um, well, one thing in, 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 in what you're saying is that, and I think this might be a way to think about how Facebook or other social media platforms, I kind of keyed in on the word in my mind, distillation, Mm. like that we're always in a process of self-distillation, right? And and, and refining in ourselves. And in some ways, social media and our cultivated selves on social media is like a hyper Mm -hmm. or accelerated or enhanced way of 
distillation, mm-hmm. right? That we're, we're trying to represent ourselves in like a few witty sentences or a photo or, or so forth, right? And then I do these things. So I'm not, you know, I, I'm in the mix. Um, I'm not speaking as an outsider. And to me, what's interesting is that I think if we look at like long running, you, you, you mentioned, you know, everything going back to Plato and these kind of questions of duality. I have a weird angle into this and, and it always goes back to what I thought was fascinating in the work um, in the political theory of Thomas Hobbes um, and how he really stressed that the state, you know, the, the uh, states as, as we, the, the kind of dominant political form in the world today as a kind of artificial construction, that the state was ultimately this artificial, non quote unquote natural creation. Mm-hmm. Like we, and he uses, he calls it a mortal God. Like, you know, if we want to dig in a little deeper, it seems like he's saying, like, we kind of create a artificial state and empower it as a, some sort of godly, earthly God or something to ward over us and to control our darker impulses. And on one level, I think we understand that, like this idea of artifice, right? And so like authenticity, we can think of artifice as perhaps a, a, a imperfect but useful antonym, right? Opposite. And on one level, to the extent that we accept natural selection and evolution, I'm, you know, I'm on board with that. So as long as we buy into that, then human beings are a natural product of natural selection and, and we grow out of natural processes as far as we know. And it, doesn't that de facto make everything we do and produce natural? Right. On one level. So, I mean, I'm very, that's like a very rote mm. read of that. But on another level, we always have this notion of artificial. Whereas Hobbes, if Hobbes calls, the state, Hobbes calls the state artificial, it makes sense to us. Or if we have a notion that Facebook is somehow less authentic or somewhat artificial in terms of a medium for human exchange and communication, it has this intuitive sense. But in, in some ways, it's unclear to us like where the line between a conversation sitting on a bench in a park where we're, as you noted, kind of still distilling and curating ourselves and how we're hearing others. We, we have this sense that it is somehow less authentic, but it's hard for us to kind of really drill down on it. So I don't know. What, what do you think? That's kind of something that came to my mind listening to you. Mm, uh, yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. So the moral God concept is really fascinating because it's also not something that just that you know, something that's lording over us and so- something that gives us rule and structure. It's also something that we worship. So it's this kind of, it's something that's created an object that creates boundaries for us that brings us comfort in some way or another. So, so this actually kind of goes back to some other existential ideas of, you know, the, the anxiety of not having that structure and then the things that we create, the life that we create the veils to shield ourselves from the fact that we have this absolute freedom, nothing means anything, we can do whatever we want, you know, the world is chaos. We build these things like the mortal god to make ourselves feel more comfortable. The other thing I was going to say was, it's interesting that you would bring up evolution and, you know, natural selection and things like that. I, I often wonder how, really how accurate social evolution, like social and cultural evolution really does mirror the biological evolution in the way that Darwin would have suggested. I'm not sure that it's entirely like a, a corollary, like a totally parallel in theory, but, but I do like to think of it that way that, you know, this was the, the logical next step in human creation in society. Just to clarify here, I, I wasn't necessarily positing that like 
our social ideas and, and so forth follow a kind of evolutionary flow? Because in some ways, it almost by nature can't because evolution is, a, is, is you know, an, at least in theory, an unconscious process. And obviously, social evolution by nature is rooted in consciousness, right? So there's that. What, what I was saying, though, is that to the extent that us as human beings are products of this natural evolutionary process and, and our consciousness and the things that kind of make us act and behave in the ways that we're talking about grows out of natural selection. It seems to me that you can make the case then that what we do is the result of natural processes. Mm -hmm. Making all this weird shit in Facebook and, you know, taking thousands of photos of ourselves and whatever, yeah. and cameras and phones and so forth. If we are natural, you know, the product of natural things, then anything we do could be argued is quote unquote natural. Mm -hmm. But we always have this, and I think that's the romantic impulse. You know, we think about Rousseau or this tradition of pastoralism and back to the earth and, you know, with this long running kind of counter anti-modernity that is rooted in a kind of romantic view. And I think romanticism is ultimately drawing on those kinds of, I guess it's a sense of unease, mm -hmm. right? We you know, I'm sitting at this desk, I got, a, you know, a couple computers here and all of these gadgets. And it is a really empowering, but it also creates a sense of, of unease and, and a sense of, of disconnection. So that's to me, what's weird is that this technology is, wasn't given to us by aliens, right? It didn't just like, as far as we know, as far as we know, <laughs> it's not some exogenous thing. Like it's the product of us and to the extent that we are natural. So that's kind of what mm -hmm. I was getting at, right? That natural, not in like a social evolutionary way, but just a more rote way. Like we are the product of, of nature and ergo, just as like anything a frog does is the product of nature because the frog grew out of nature. Like we're, right. and, and it's, you know, and that's kind of going back to Hobbes. My analogy I use when I think about Hobbes is that in, in some ways he sees the state as in some ways like a zoo, mm -hmm. like, a tiger is still a natural tiger in a zoo, but it's obviously now in very unnatural confines. And I think that's kind of the way Hobbes saw the state is that it's actually contra to our natural existence, but in some ways it's necessary to make a functioning and kind of durable society. Uh, obviously, a lot of people disagree with that and I'm not, we're not, I'm not here to the kind of argue in favor of that one way or another, but that's kind of his model is, is the is the kind of a zoo like we make a the state is a zoo that we make to cage ourselves and and in some ways i think this does circle back to what we talked about at the very beginning this idea of what's possible and what's not possible and in some ways i i feel bad now i'm bending this to political theory but in some ways politics is a way for trying to fabricate or produce um to use the term you used earlier facticity mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah, every listen, everything's political, so never apologize for that. Um, Amen. That's I've, I've been preaching that for years. Everything is absolutely political, and and everything is philosophical and existential as well. So, um, but I, like, I want to go back to what you were saying about the zoo again. It's interesting to me that you say it's necessary for us to create structure in the world, but I. I also want to think about... Well, Hobbes well, is saying that. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I, 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 Okay, so this is, you know, I'm, I'm going to live through Hobbes here. Okay. So this is what Hobbes I'm not is accusing kind of you of anything, I promise. But what I want to okay. observe <laughs> is that, yeah, the zoo is also a way through which we can observe. We can control what we see. 
we're putting the confines down because we're afraid of everything we don't. We don't know if that tiger can attack us, but we do know that if we put it in this box, it probably won't attack us. And in, in a weird-ass way, Facebook and all of our different rectangles, as Jim Batcher would say, um, they, they kind of confine us in that same way. Like if we put these little boundaries around ourselves and other people, we have some or other control. We believe we have some or other control of what we consume and what we project out into the world and that kind of thing. So I always, I do like to think about like people, we are, we are just animals in a zoo as well in some, in some way or another. And I, and yeah. And I mean, and I think this is what Hobbes was getting at. And, and I said, I think there are, I'm not, I'm not a um, devout Hobbesian. I, I, I like Hobbes in the way I like existentialism as a kind of model for understanding the political as a, as a window into thinking about politics rather than buying in like lockstep with his whole spiel. But uh, I mean, well, to me, what, what I always find most interesting is again, this back and forth between um, what is natural and what is um, artificial, mm -hmm. artifice. And, and I think that maps on to things of like, you know, the state and state power and, and so forth to our own experience of our increasingly like technology laden existence, right? And we always are wondering what is real and what is authentic. And I love, you know, we keep citing Bacho. Um, I, I think Bacho has the ideas that it, the, there's an increasing singularity being formed, right? That, that we, in, you know, I'm 43. And so I have this, at least up to now, and I, I mentioned this in my discussion with Jim, like people at, at, at this age, like we, I've lived roughly half of my life prior to kind of internet supremacy and half of my life after, um, roughly. Uh, and that that ratio is shrinking, of course. So um, as I get older, so I still kind of have this idea of internet world and quote unquote real world, and there is a divide in in what you know Jim pointed out is that increasingly, and for even me, but for pre you know definitely students I'm teaching now who are eighteen, nineteen years old, that very premise doesn't make much sense, right? That that divide is doesn't really. Right. Um, it's all one. The, the digital just is our life now. It's not, it's not just a part of our life. It, it is right. the way th through which we live. And so how, let me ask you, and this is, I want to ask Simone Lee, and, and we've all been, you know, and that's, it's good because it's good because people have ideas and it's good to process them, whether it's Hobbes or Satra or, you know, the great Jim Bacho. Um, but how does Simone Lee think about how these things affect us as aspiring um, authentic being. God, I don't know. If I knew that, I would probably um, be able to <laughs> retire to an island somewhere. I think that we vacillate between becoming closer to becoming more authentic people as a society and then slide violently towards like even more bad faith. And I, I really, I don't see any way in which social media can provide any level of meaningful authenticity in the way that we represent ourselves or the way that we learn about other people or you know, the way that we learn about any, anything really. Um, it's just too, it's just too one dimensional. And as much as we try and, and, and force layers and layers of transparency onto this, you know, at the end of the day, the reason that these little snapshots, you know, 
we've got Instagram or Facebook, little Twitter is like 140 characters, TikTok, these like three second videos or whatever. Because we don't have the attention span to sit and actually get to know somebody. So we want to try and distill the essence of ourselves into these little capsules and put it out into the world and expect that to be an authentic representation. And I, I think it's, it's, it's really sad because I, I don't think that we spend enough time just sitting with those elements of ourselves. And, and so in all, full disclosure, I'm all about the self and like psychology. And I love that this like, is like a confession. Yeah, no, because, because I know Jim's listening. I know Jim's listening and he's going to be all like the self is ridiculous and identity is stupid. And, wow. but, but the truth is like, I'm all <laughs> hanging over this conversation. Um, well, we have these arguments. Is Jim our is Jim our mortal god? Are we uh, are we living in fear of Bacho's censure? You know, I I couldn't I couldn't say no to that. I, I'd be lying. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, have, I have a fear of, of of many. There are many people in my lives whose voices remain in my conscience. And this is maybe a good. Maybe we we're having we have some listeners who don't dig into philosophy, and that's totally cool and, and understandable. And but but I think it, it is an interesting window into. The people who have chosen the course to really, um, as yourself and uh, people like Jim and, and uh, George Corey and others, um, previous guests who have chosen uh, life. It, I haven't really fully delved into it, but uh, those who have um, statements like "I believe in the self" is is, is actually an important statement mm-hmm. in that world. So I think that's a, I, I mean, in a real way, I think it's important to note that, right? That 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 has like a, a, a some substance to it to say that you believe in a. A, a kind of unique, indivisible self, because some people don't, right? They see the self as like a as, a, as a fiction. David Hume famously said, you know, there there is no real like real self, mm-hmm. like individual self. So um, for re- different reasons than maybe others, but you believe in a self, and you find that kind of social media or even internet mediated communications, to kind of put it in a very broad category, uh, is in some ways a um, a drag upon understanding and cultivating a self, an authentic self. Is that accurate? And an authentic self. Yeah. I think the self is going to be there either way. You know, if, if our ultimate, like as, as human beings in this greater existential, you know, existence, as it were, if our whole thing is, is a, a will to meaning, then we should be trying to figure out who ourselves really are and how that fits into the world and what we can give to society and the community and everything else. But if we're constantly forcing ourselves to believe that we are nothing more than what we put in this little capsule and feed the internet, then we're, we're never going to be able to find substantial meaning in our lives and, and we're not be able to provide meaningful contributions to our communities and societies. So, that, I mean, that's kind of the long and short of it for me. Right. And and I think in some ways, what is perhaps the most, I don't know, dangerous isn't the right word, or perhaps the most concerning uh, aspect of this is the way that increasingly, and I, I don't know, I, I understand um, the, the notion that it's kind of all one, and, and particularly for people who are under 20, or, you know, who kind of grew up in, in this epoch of, of internet centrality. Uh, I, I understand that, but I, I, I still think it, it is I don't know, saddening or, or morose kind of feeling how much 
the digital template like impinges increasingly upon our like lived moments. And, and I'm speaking very real to my, to my own experience of I have a, a, you know, a, a nearly two-year-old son and I go out with him and play with him all the time. And I've caught myself sometimes being like, holy shit, like he's just doing his thing and enjoy and, and, and probably what he wants most is my full attention. And here I am freaking trying to videotape and take photos of him. Like, what the fuck am I doing? You know, and so I'll call myself out and I'm like, what? And I'm doing this probably so I can share with others and even share with family members. And I know my grandparents like to see it, but I'm like, this is like, this is, this is a beautiful moment. This is my son just playing with pine cones and rolling in the grass. And what I, my authentic me should be doing is just fully invested in, in experiencing that moment with him and watching his, and sharing this joy. And here I am with a fucking phone in my hand, like trying to capture the moment. And I, and I've, I've tried to, limited and i do like getting videos and stuff to send to family and and so forth but that to me um to use that own example is like it's increasingly impinging upon these experiences in in a negative way where i've you know moments where i should be fully present attention wise right and i'm distracted trying to get the right camera angle or fitting with this or that and and that to me is something that I find concerning, right? And so, I don't know. Yeah, that's... That, well, that, you yeah, know. I mean, okay, so from, from you know, the Sartrean perspective, first of all, there is no should. Uh, you, you're the only one who, who says what you should or shouldn't be doing with your time. And, um, and he would also say that it's not impinging on your experiences. You are making a decision to act in a way that impinges on your experiences. I, okay, now... I, I'm not no, that, I would, I would. <laughs> Sasha's point of view. I'm not saying that you're a no, terrible person I, for it. I'm just saying like existentially, no, I mean, you know, it's about hmm. the choices that we make and becoming aware of the choices that we make and why we make them and if those are the ones we want to make. Well, this is really cool because in, in, in some ways you captured that. It changed the entire characterization of what I just said about thinking about, you know, trying to take videos of my, of my son or whatever. It returned me, it returned my agency the way you put it. And that's, and that's important. Internet technology is not making me do anything. I'm making a choice to do this. But at the same time, I'm, I'm interested about the word should because I think that also gets in these kinds of, we, we have often conflicting things that we want. And I, yeah, I mean, I think this, it, we're all back into these dualities. Like, what? And, and obviously, now I'm recalling that since we've opened the door of political philosophy, you know, Machiavelli's famous line, like, because how one lives and how one ought to live is often so different, or roughly mm-hmm. paraphrasing, right? And so, um, and I think for Machiavelli, that's a key strain in his kind of political thought is that we have this ideal notion of how we should live, and then we have what we actually do do, and um, but I like the I like the the returning of framing is that even in the way I was describing it, I was kind of in some ways removing myself as an agent, and we can see the value. I, and I think this is in some ways one of the big goals of of the episode, amongst many, is that just what happened right there. You're saying no, stop. Like you are the agent. Put yourself back in the kind of agent position, and then ref, you know rephrase it as that society or the internet or whatever else is not making these decisions. You, the individual. Kevin, in that moment with his son, are, is choosing to take your phone out, turn the camera on, and divert your attention to that, right? And so, th- and even in the way I described it, that kind of got blurred out, and it's a way of recentering yourself in this and putting yourself back in the 
as a kind of the protagonist deciding role. Yeah. Right. Yes. 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 And so I think that just in that exchange, I think that really um, came out. Um, and so maybe this is a good time to segue into criticisms because I think that you know there are obviously like any. Um, school of philosophy and we've talked there are kind of people just like it, it can be kind of just some flip criticisms like existentialism people just sitting there just thinking about the nature of the world man and just like you know like well you know and not and not and i think one thing we've really and you've been able to do is kind of really make it clear how much this weighs into decisions we make like should i videotape my son right now or just play with him, right i mean so <laughs> that is an existential question yeah, every everything um, is <laughs> Right. But also the, the, you know, there certainly are critics. So what, what are some major criticisms of this approach or, yeah. or one or, or something? Um, well, there, there are quite a few and uh, quite a few that I have taken on as I've grown in my own studies of existentialism. I was a huge proponent of Sartre when I was in my early 20s, as, as probably mm. most people are. Um, but one of the things that you had kind of mentioned earlier is if we are to take like Darwinism and everything is natural, then how can we really claim that we've created anything? How is that? The question there is free will versus determinism. And it's funny because I occasionally just to be cute, if someone says, why did you, why did you do that thing? And I'll say, I didn't do it. The Big Bang made me do it. Like, like <laughs> it's not my fault. The Big Bang right. because if we're going to say that like everything's determined by nature and we're just like in this uncontrolled trajectory to whatever nature's making us do, then then that's at the end of the day we have no responsibility. But then, well, as an aside, yeah. for, just to just to add for our for our listeners, there is a big strain and emerging strain in the area of of philosophy and also um, neuropsychology and in the nexus between them that argues that free will is an illusion. That is one of the big criticisms is, is you know, well, then, then what's all this about? It doesn't matter if we've got ethics. It doesn't matter if we find meaning in our lives or not. It's, if there is scientific proof that we don't really have free will, then what is it? what does existentialism really have to say about any of that? If existentialism is telling us that we have absolute freedom and we have absolute responsibility over everything that we do, it comes in direct contrast to these ideas of the Big Bang. <laughs> not, not necessarily, but I, I mean, I think you get it. And, that, and that's the thing is, that, uh, you know, so much of what we go through, and this is a really important one of the criticisms that I've had personally with existentialism, is that it doesn't take into account things like the brain. And Sartre didn't know anything about neurotransmitters. And <laughs> neurochemical right. <laughs> imbalances that lead to mental illnesses. And so if he had to meet somebody with bipolar disorder, if they said, well, I, I was in a manic episode, like I was not in control of my faculties, he would say, doesn't matter. You're totally, absolutely free. You made those decisions. And, um, and, and so that's kind of a, bi a, a really big thing. If you're going to say that we have absolute freedom, it, it really it's it goes really far into the way that people live their everyday lives and their everyday experiences and um it really invalidates a lot of what we go through as human beings if we just claim that everyone's responsible for absolutely everything that they do it's interesting because again here we are at dualities because there is this idea of neurological and, and mental illness or or certain kind of chemical issues or or other sort of problems that people encounter that can really affect their ability to 
be the kind of master of their own destiny and this kind of existential uh, ideal. And, th- and I think the, the, the opposite criticism of, of people like Sartre and, and other existentialists have come from the much more earthly realm of politics and you know, things like class, gender, race. Um, obviously, Simone de Beauvoir, who was a long-term romantic partner and also uh, intellectual partner of Sartre for decades, famously wrote the treatise um, The Second Sex, right, that I think in some ways was a pushback against the ideal of the kind of totally authentic free mm-hmm. person by looking at how gender and, and gender norms can be extremely constraining and, and extremely restrictive. And and if we if we tie into that again, economic class, poverty, um, racial discrimination, you know, you could imagine someone saying, "Well, this is great, but you know, you're going to tell me that someone who was born to a privileged background like Sartre, who came from the upper middle class and had you know a high level pedigree, it's great for you to talk about all this freedom you have, but you know, for someone who's born into poverty or to broken homes and so forth, I mean, can, is it is it reasonable to equate?" the kind of autonomy they have in terms of exploring these kinds of possibilities in terms of your your freedom and, and, and so forth, right? So I think that's another angle. And, and one that I, if I, from, again, my reading, I read a book about some of the existentialists, uh, one that Sartre was quite sensitive to because of his background. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that would definitely be right up top of my, uh, my um, most pressing criticisms is that it really does diminish the lived experience of people who have been oppressed and continue to be oppressed and really by by suggesting that people are absolutely absolutely free and responsible for you know their their circumstances really is is kind of disrespectful to people who have inherited a ridiculous amount of debt and poverty and who have inherited just horrible circumstances from their ancestors and just just by being a certain gender ethnicity having fewer opportunities by that virtue alone we don't have as much freedom as Sartre would expect us to admit right well and i think this is where and and maybe this is as good a place as any to kind of uh wrap up on but uh Again, we're back at another kind of dualism. Uh, so I'm glad you kind of noted that we're, 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 you know, floating in these dualisms because at the same time, it can be also equally insulting and dehumanizing to take someone who has encountered discrimination, oppression, poverty, things that, that are certainly restrictive to one's ability to move and, and engage with the, the world and, and so forth can be also dehumanizing to just say that they're just a determined individual who is who is completely at the mercy of the forces around mm-hmm. them. That can also be, and in some ways that can fall into these objectification, that the per- it do- they don't even become like, and that even though someone does face these conditions. So it's a real quandary. I, I'm, I'm not positing any answer to this because at, at one level, yeah, you don't, it's ridiculous to compare someone who's had a comfortable upbringing in terms of access to food, housing, feeling secure, identifying with a dominant group that is protected in, in, in many different ways that other groups aren't. But at the same time, it, it is, you don't, the other end of that is also equally um, pernicious mm-hmm. because you are rendering someone an object who is basically just formed by their conditions and they have no individuality outside of those conditions or those 
identities, be they gender, race, sexuality, and, and so forth, right? And so, um, and and in some ways, and I'm gonna drop a preview for um, our next guest um, after this episode drops will be Chris Tharp, and we're gonna be talking about the Great Woke Wars, and I think that segs into these kinds of discourses about how to navigate a world that is trying to become more conscientious of these phenomenon um, and embrace understanding structural limitations while understanding also the unique individuality that we all possess. And I, I, I'm positing that as like, man, that is, in, and that is why you have a lot of really smart people at each other's throat about this stuff. Because it's hard. Like it's hard. <laughs> it's hard, and there's yeah, and there's no real answer, right? I mean, you know, and, 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 and in some ways, that's the that's the thing, right? Again, three questions, and you're back to Plato. We know nothing. Like <laughs> right. the only way that we're gonna be living authentically is when we can accept the fact that we know that we can't have a static answer. There is no objectification of anything. It's constantly moving and forming, and and changing i mean and i'm sure this will come up in the next episode like the the language that we use to describe people it's constantly changing and for better or worse who knows but it's it's extremely difficult and there is no answer and and so existentially we must feel all of the anxiety about that so we started this episode with a big question and our conclusion is there is no answer yep. <laughs> no, that's great. Simone Lee, thank you so much for dropping into the Caves of Altamira. This was an absolutely fascinating discussion and one that I think is going to generate a lot of thought and hopefully discussion amongst our listeners. So I really uh, can't thank you enough for joining us. Awesome. Thank you so much, Kevin. It's been so great to chat with you. All right. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. And yes, do stay tuned um, after this episode. In a few weeks, we should be having our next kind of, and in some ways, I think it pairs really nicely with this episode uh, discussion with the one and only, speaking of singularities, the singularity that is Chris Tharp um, on the great woke wars of the 2020s and beyond. All right. Thank you. Thank you.